And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon the the case that may be. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when we send out transmissions into the solar system and across the galaxy, and someone answers. The only problem is... Um, We can't tell you exactly who it was yet. We are, as they say, working on it. We have top men. Remember that great line from uh, uh, Indiana Jones? Uh, We have top men working on it. Um, And in fact, they are top men, and you're going to meet some of them tonight. Before we get to this extraordinary experiment that we are in in the middle of, actually, no, that's a misstatement. We are at the very beginning of something extraordinary and after i go through a couple of interesting news items i'm going to kind of recap for new listeners because we have new listeners all the time as my friend in radio used to say jumping in and out of the wheelbarrow like frogs isn't that an awful simile anyway um i will get to kind of how we got to where we are tonight momentarily but let me give you some really interesting news today is a red letter day not only for the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, but for all the rest of us. Today is the 14th tetrahedral day, literally to the day, since the Webb Space Telescope was launched on Christmas morning, talk about a present, at 7.20 a.m. Eastern Time, 5.20 a.m. my time. You can imagine where I was then. obviously watching um from french guiana middle of a rainforest it's been in orbit en route to the l2 position and if you don't know about l2 you will momentarily for the last 14 days well 14 days they've been in transit they're about 600,000 miles away from earth roughly twice the distance to the moon, actually somewhat more. And they're aiming for a region of space, not a point, but a region called the L2 region. Um, A French celestial mechanics astronomer several centuries ago named uh, um, uh, Lagrange figured out, calculated that there are five stable points, give or take, in a given two-body system with one object orbiting around another. And they're labeled L1, L2, L3, you know, Lagrange 1, Lagrange 2, that kind of thing. Uh, Two of them are very stable, L4 and L5. Those are the ones that are ahead of and behind at 60 degrees an object orbiting, like the Earth. You know, they're 60 degrees ahead of the Earth's orbit and 60 degrees behind the Earth's orbit in the Earth's orbit, and they're not points. They're actually regions where something will kind of orbit around because of other disturbing factors. The solar system is more than two objects, right? Right. The other three points, uh, L1, L2, and L3, are unstable, meaning that you can put an object there and it will orbit for a time, but it will kind of wander away eventually. So what you do if you want to put a spacecraft at these 
positions, these Lagrange points, is you give them fuel and you give them thrusters, and every once in a while they make a little correction and they kind of nudge themselves so their orbit doesn't take very much at all, just a tiny little nudge to keep them kind of orbiting those, quote, points in space. Again, in the plane of the Earth's orbit around the sun, because we're talking about the Earth-Sun system. The L2 point is about a million miles behind the Earth, away from the sun, a million miles out. Um, it's not in the shadow of the Earth because, uh, um, you know, the you have to be really exactly aligned to be in the shadow at a million miles. I mean, can you imagine how small the Earth would appear at a million miles? Uh, that's about four times the distance of the Earth Moon. The Earth Moon, uh, the Earth from the Moon, uh, subtends about two degrees. So the Earth from the L2 point, if you look back toward the Sun, would be one degree. So if the Earth passes one degree above the disk of the Sun, which again is one uh, quarter the size that it would appear. Uh, I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's about the same size, about half a degree as it would appear from the moon because a million miles on this scale means nothing. Um, you can see that even slight orbital inclinational differences because the the orbit around the L2 point is not in plane. It will be out of plane sometimes. So the idea of going into an eclipse is rare and usually... Uh, uh, only occurs, you know, around the equinox, uh, roughly twice a year. Anyway, um, all of this celestial mechanics means that they're almost like 70-some percent of the way to the L2 point. And over the last 14 days, as the spacecraft has been cruising uphill, slowing down, it's moving tonight at about four-tenths of a kilometer per second which is about, what, 1.6, a little low, less than two-tenths uh, of, a, of a mile per second, which is fast on Earth and very slow in space. And by the end of the month, by like the 23rd, 24th, somewhere around there, it will arrive on station. It will arrive at the L2 region, and they will fire thrusters, given the onboard fuel situation, which is really good. I mean, they got such perfection out of the Ariane launch vehicle that they said this afternoon, the project director said this afternoon in a NASA briefing, which is what I was watching most of the afternoon, and I'll tell you why in a moment, he said that they've got enough fuel on board, barring any unexpected radical emergencies, to literally last them, wait for it, 20 years. In other words, if nothing goes to the telescope, visits it, like uh, Hubble was visited by the shuttle in uh, low Earth orbit, that telescope can now function, barring electronic failures, for 20 years, given the onboard fuel that's required to give these little nudges every once in a while to keep it very happily and peacefully orbiting the L2 point. So, um, why is today important? Well, today, the 14th tetrahedral day after launch, and you know where that number comes from. You know, there are seven symmetry spins of a tetrahedron. If you have two of them, that's 14. 
Um, it's also symbolically encoded in the dismemberment of Osiris, the 14 pieces that Isis had to put back together to reconstitute him after he'd been torn asunder in Egyptian mythology. I mean, all these hyperdimensional numbers are encoded in the myths. We'll, we'll get back to the, the transmissions that we did with some of these numbers shortly. So anyway, on this 14th tetrahedral day, the Webb Space Telescope people, the NASA people at NASA Goddard, my old alma mater, uh, finished what is called the major elements of the commissioning of the Webb Space Telescope. What do I mean by that? Well, as you know, they had to launch this thing all folded up like a folded up praying mantis inside the nose cone, i.e. fairing of an Ariane 2 heavy launch vehicle rocket. And it's a big, it's a huge telescope when it's all unfolded and deployed and unfurled and everything is, is out there the way it should be for it to operate as a functional observatory in space. So the last two weeks, the last 14 days, have been spent in deploying various aspects of the telescope, which had to all be perfectly 100% deployed for this thing to function. And the three major elements that had to, without fail, work, otherwise the whole mission would be a $10 billion catastrophe. That's how much this telescope, probably the most expensive spacecraft apart from the Apollo program itself, which in 1969 dollars was like 20 billion and would be probably more like 30 now in inflated dollars. Uh, the single most expensive machine that humans have ever launched into space uh, as a single spacecraft is, is the Webb telescope. Why is it so expensive? Because they had to spend decades, literally almost 25 years, a quarter of a century designing it, learning how to make various parts of it, machining them, testing them, throwing away the failures, going back to the drawing board, doing all kinds of incredible testing in vacuum chambers and cryogenic rooms. And I mean, the degree of testing of this mechanical Rube Goldberg type device. For you the, who do not know who Rube Goldberg was, Google is your friend. Um, be prepared to be shocked when you read out about Rube Goldberg. Anyway, the most complicated part of unfurling this thing after it was launched like a butterfly out of a chrysalis, the, uh, the nose cone, the, the uh, fairing, was the five layers of Kevlar plastic uh, luminized film that extended out to about the area of a tennis court, all on booms, cables, and wires, and pulleys, and motors, and I mean, an incredible complex nightmare, a spider web of mechanical things, all of which could go wrong, go wrong, go wrong, that kind of thing. And in 14 days, they not only successfully, a few days ago, finished deployment of this tennis court-sized multiple-layer, five-layer uh, Kevlar shield, which will protect the telescope and the electronics 
and the sensors, the cameras, the spectrometers, the super, super cold by necessity instrumentation that will do the actual observing uh, from the sun, even just a million miles further away from the sun than the earth is. And it's pretty hot here, you know. That's why you have nice summer days. And even here in the land of enchantment, nice winter days. It was up to almost 60 degrees uh, this afternoon here in the uh, land of enchantment in winter in January, um, which was really nice. Anyway, all this incredible mechanical complexity worked perfectly the first time. And that huge tennis court size multiple layer sun shield was successfully deployed several days ago. The next thing that had to be deployed was the two elements on the side. They called them wings of the 18 segment hexagonal mirrors. Two, I'm sorry, three on each wing. That makes six to be added to the ones in the center that were, you know, um, narrow enough to fit inside the, you know, rocket's nose cone, i.e. fairing. Those all had to be deployed and then locked into place. The, um, the boom, the three carbon fiber booms had to be unfurled and locked into place again by motors so that the secondary mirror, which sticks out in front of this tripod uh, carbon fiber tube arrangement, like three soda straws meeting at a point above the mirror, that had to be deployed, all of this to make the beginnings of a functioning telescope a million miles behind the Earth in space, behind a sun shield, where the differential between the temperatures on the sun side of the telescope, uh, below the shield, you know, the electronics that need to be kept warm, and the telescope itself, which is the mirrors and the secondary mirrors and the instruments and all that, which are on the night side of the sun shield, that have to be kept really, 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 really cold, like only 50 degrees above absolute zero. They're like minus 400 degrees Fahrenheit when they get down to temperatures. The differential between the sun side temps and the night side temps for this telescope, as it's now deployed and moving again through space, at uh, about 1.6, I'm sorry, 0.16 miles per second toward the L2 point is over 600 degrees between the day side and the night side. I mean, this machine is the most superlative, most complex, most expensive, most incredibly efficient when it gets going, when it starts actually functioning as an observatory. machine humankind has ever created bar none because it's going to literally see back to the beginning of time like a hundred million years or give or take right after the big bang and all the really cool stuff that happened very quickly in the early 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 universe time frame and the list of what it's going to reveal and confirm and boggle our mind with in terms of things that we have no idea are out there to be noticed and discovered and observed, um, just like with Hubble. Um, It's all about to function. Now, what's going to happen next? Well, for the next several months, 
now that they've got the primary mirror all in one set of 18 hexagonal mirrors. Each of those mirrors is a telescope by itself. And what they literally will do is they will use more motors um, on the backside of those mirrors to literally tilt and pan them so instead of being aimed all over the sky, which they pretty much are now because they had to survive the uh, rigors and the vibrations of launch and, you know, the mechanical uh, tolerances of latches and screws and, and uh, you know, hold-down clamps and all that. Once they use those motors on the backside of those 18 mirrors to drive them in X and Y axes and then to use a motor in the center to change the focus of each sub-mirror. The ultimate aim is to have all 18 mirrors functioning together as one giant integrated 22-foot-wide mirror. I mean, the 200-inch telescope on Mount Wilson is only, uh, I think, about uh, 16, I'm sorry, eight, about eight feet wide, I think. Um, I don't have a calculator down here, so 200 inches divided by 12. Tell me what that is, okay? Um, it's, it's, uh, it, it's not very big compared to the web, and it was never designed to function at 400 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. It's going to take them literally tweaking and taking images in the infrared with the cameras, then tweaking some more. This is a very complicated, very elaborate, very time-consuming trial and error process. But the hard part, the, the, what we would call the show-stopping part, the part where if that didn't work, you didn't have a telescope, that part is behind us. The sun shield is deployed and tensioned. The secondary mirror is out front. The main elements have been, you know, moved around from the side to the front, locked into place. Now it's all about the fine-tuning, and that will go on for several months. And then in about uh, the end of the six-month period, which is about, what, five and a half months from now, given that we're two weeks after launch, there will be a telescope, and they're going to try to blow our socks off by taking some pictures of stunning things that humans have never had the capability of looking at or imaging or sampling in terms of spectroscopic data ever, ever before. And they are going to blow our minds because the universe is, as Horace said once, it's a big galaxy, Mr. Scott. Well, this is only one galaxy with about half a trillion stars. There are trillions of galaxies visible to this telescope, literally trillions. And they'll be able to eavesdrop on planets and detect planets where as they orbit other stars, there are chemicals in the atmosphere that like in Earth's atmosphere are indicative of some kind of photosynthetic life. All of this is coming to a head in the next five and a half months. So in about five and a half months, which is what, uh, June, July, somewhere around there, we should prepare to see some amazing imagery and some equally amazing explanations. So if you go to the other side of midnight.com 
That's our website, theothersideofmidnight.com. Um, that will take you to the guest page tonight with our banner, which says very mysteriously, Amuamua, or someone answers. Because that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. What we've learned so far, we've learned a little bit more tonight. You're going to hear that. And what we need to do next to learn more. Click on that banner. That will take you to the guest page. Under there, you'll see uh, where it says fast links to items under to listen to the show under the guest page banner. Click on my items. That takes you to item number one. This is an up-to-date web blog that's updated sometimes twice, three times a day, and sometimes only once a day. But kind of save that link and then just, uh, you know, refresh, and that will tell you where they are in the fine-tuning of the mirrors to make one super 22-foot-wide primary mirror of the biggest telescope by far ever, ever, ever put into space and one of the biggest telescopes that humankind has ever created either on the ground or in space. Okay, item number two. This is the link directly to where is the telescope. This shows you graphically how far it is away from the L2 point. And when they get there, they'll change the graphics and you'll be able to follow its orbit around and updates, you know, temperatures, things like that. Number three. Uh, This is very interesting. Item number three. In the last few weeks, NASA has done some very, very curious things, kind of like Webb is the beginning of an orchestral overture, which is designed to prepare us for a whole new view of the universe and our place in it, and maybe some other people's place in it. And this story is really rather remarkable. Because it actually documents that in the last few weeks, NASA has reached out to a group of something like 24 theologians at various institutions, religious institutions, uh, and academic institutions around the world. And they basically asked them to, to study human reactions to an official announcement that there are, <clears throat> wait for it, aliens. I mean, does this kind of remind anyone of Brookings? It sure does to me. The timing, of course. Remember, while this is all going on with our favorite local neighborhood space agency, the Department of Defense, under the latest NDAA, National Defense and Authorization Act, which is the annual appropriation and authorization of funds for the Department of Defense, Almost a trillion dollars spent on web in this DOD bureaucracy, this vast, overwhelming bureaucracy. They have set up a, a new office, a new department, which reports directly to the Secretary of Defense, who in turn reports directly to the President of the United States. And what is that office? Well, it's an office designed to study, research, and report to the Congress and someday to people on UF. O's. In other words, since we know there are no terrestrial UFOs, come on, on aliens. Now, do you think these two separate developments are truly separate? Because if you do, I have a bridge in Arizona that I can sell you real cheap. No, of course they're not. This is part of an integrated plan. 
from all the indications that we have, and we're going to be talking to a very interesting person tomorrow night on the Sunday show named Paul Wallace, who has written a stunning book called The Scars of Eden, which is going to track potentially our interaction with aliens going back millennia with some really interesting documented evidence. Anyway, all of this is coming to a head now because from all these separate disparate trend curves, I and some of my colleagues are projecting that 2022, I love that alliteration, you know, 2022, is going to be the year that we again, the again is in parentheses, that we again make contact. In other words, that's when they're going to tell us that we, in fact, are not alone. And that's why they are reaching out to theologians to try to tell them as a government bureaucracy, i.e. NASA, how people might react. Well, uh, we, they, they could have saved some money because there's no way that a poll is going to tell you what the most monumental modern rediscovery in human history is going to do to people until you go through the monumental rediscovery of what history does to people. Polls will not tell you in the abstract, in the academic, how people will respond because they respond at one level when asked a question, and they respond at a very different visceral level when confronted with the actual evidence. And I probably should modify that because based on our year, well, two years now and change of experience with COVID-19, I think a large percentage of people on earth, if and when official governments say we are not alone, that a large percentage of people will completely, totally ignore that announcement, either because they already think they know what being not alone in the universe means, i.e. from their religious perspectives, or B, they will so have distrusted government over the last 10, 20, 30 years, which at so many levels has demonstrably lied to them, that when government says we're not alone, They'll say, yeah, and whose grandmother says that? In other words, they will not believe the official announcements, regardless of how high in government it comes from. And that will present some interesting uh, problems and potential opportunities, which, of course, brings us to what we're doing here tonight on the other side of midnight. Because, as you know, starting... Um, in, in, uh, back in December of last year, we literally tried an experiment that had never been tried before. We tried to actually communicate with an extraterrestrial object, the first known interstellar uh, visitor to the solar system, which whipped through the solar system in 2017 and sent us in response to our communication something which sounded a lot like this. (laughs) 
when we come back, we're going to bring on members of our Oumuamua team, and we're going to talk about what we have received, what we've been able to decode, and where do we go next. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back to the other side of midnight. No, that's not our transmissions, and that's not our reception. That is from Close Encounters of the Third Kind, a 1977 movie, which eerily depicted that maybe the most likely way to get a response from interstellar uh, occupants, from extraterrestrials, was to send tones, to send frequencies, to send harmonics, to send fundamental mathematics and geometry, which basically is the basis of the construction of 3D reality itself. I hope somebody's taken all this down. What do we say to each other? Anyway, welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight for this Saturday night, January 8th, 2022, the day the web has now been successfully almost commissioned. There's a lot of work ahead, but nothing is a showstopper. There's multiple backups, multiple motors. These little motors are going to twist and tweak and re-aim and point the uh, 18 sub-mirrors, but that's... uh, a very relaxed process compared to the perils of unfolding that uh, tennis court size, size uh, 
Sunshield. So let me introduce, without further ado, our guest tonight. Um, not in any particular order, because uh, we don't have a particular order around here. Um, we have with us David Sarita, who is, of course, one of the prime investigators involved in our uh, Enterprise Mission Oumuamua team. He is a polymath. He's been working with sacred sites, sacred numbers, sacred frequencies, and sacred geometry literally for decades, and is basically, like most of the rest of us here, a generalist. Uh, we have John Womack, who, in addition to being a music producer and someone who is extraordinarily adept with computer programming and uh, uh, animations and graphics and videos, also is an experiencer um, in terms of personal contact with whoever might be out there because he's been enjoying out-of-body experiences and uh, communication with, I love this phrase from Michael Hill, those not from here for many, many decades. And last but not least, we are joined tonight by um, Tom, um, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking. <laughs> I'm totally blanking on Tom's last name. Um, it'll come to me momentarily. Um, he joined us as a um, uh, music producer, actually Emmy-nominated music producer. And uh, his interest has also been in uh, um, frequencies, sacred geometry. Uh, he lived for a time in Ecuador. He has visited many, many sacred sites. Um, he actually uh, wrote me an email some weeks ago saying, um, I might be able to help uh, send me some data, which we did. And uh, thereby hangs a very interesting tale. So without further ado, um, I'm sorry, Tom, I'm completely blanking on your last name. And I think in part it's because you had two, you had a stage name, and I insisted rather stubbornly that we not use stage names tonight, that we represent to the scientific community our real names. So, um, Mathers, Mathers, yes, I, I knew it would come to me. <laughs> so anyway, General Owen, oh, Ron Gerbron is with us, our resident generalist, and you basically all have heard Ron on the show many, many times before. So without further ado, welcome all to the other side of midnight. Hi, Richard. Howdy. That's hey, John. Richard. That I think is Tom. Hey, that was Thomas. Yep. And this is David Sarita. And Hi, David. And Ron is there okay. somewhere in the background. Ron, are you with us? Oh, maybe his phone always acts up when we try to do a show. It's very curious. So, in fact, I don't see him in the lineup. So, I guess we may have to call him back. Um, let me let me go to you, David. Why don't you kind of set up the the background? How did we get to where we are tonight? You were working oh, with a. Now there I'm you. unmuted. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, that was a key thing. Okay. Um, David, you were working with a radio ham named Jimmy Blanchett and um, I had you on like six weeks ago something like that and out of this developed the idea of sending through Blanchett's antenna um, at a power of something like half a million watts a dedicated message to Amuamua this object which came through the solar system in 2017 which a lot of the, the people, including the mainstream, people like Abby Loeb at Harvard, 
uh, have been championing for many, many years now as potentially an interstellar object of artificial origin. The only difference is that they listened, mainstream mega radio facilities, radio astronomy facilities, but nobody, at least publicly, until we thought of doing it, thought to transmit, certainly not on these particular frequencies. So um, why don't you start at the beginning and, and kind of unfold for people who are new uh, what we said we would do, what we did, and some of the early returns. Well, first of all, when I started working with Jimmy Blanchett, our, our first transmission was August 8th, 2021. We did a moon bounce, and we we aligned the moon bounce between the antenna and, and the Great Pyramid of Egypt would be at the center of that moon bounce. And then we had a guy videotaping the Great Pyramid to determine if there was any response, if the pyramid's semiconductive and conductive properties would would emit or vibrate with an energy. And sure enough, we ran the video he shot, his name is Syed, um, through an algorithm software, and you could see a, a, an enormous energy vibrational response, you know, pictographically, videographically, you can see what appears to be an aura coming off the pyramid. And that, that signal by, you know, when it left the earth, I mean, Jimmy's antenna, dep- depending on angle, could produce up to a half a million watts, but most of the transmissions are somewhere around 75,000 um, watts, you know, 100,000 watts, 250,000 watts in that region. But on, on a very low angle transmission, he could reach a half a million watts. So what we have to determine now is because there's another component in the responses we get and you know, while we're beckoning our our universe, we're knocking on heaven's door. We've literally sent actually after my wife died, actually August ninth, which is the anniversary of Nagasaki, actually. And she we we sent her musical recordings to Mercury, Venus, um, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, actually as a form of knocking on heaven's door with encoded messages. So there are several ways that we transmit. We will send actual tones, just like the tonal dialoguing in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. We sent pictograms, which are, which are generated by facsimile-type technology. When, when you scan an image on a fax machine, it's basically the same type of technology as that. You're converting an image which including including the type and, and pictures into a sound wave, and the sound wave actually contains the picture. And then we also sent, um, of course, musical recordings and the human voice. So when we look at our responses, um, the responses come in on these little, basically ham radios that um, we are tuning the radio to the same frequency as the transmission. And here's what's really interesting is I want everyone to see this. Just get a piece of paper, draw a straight line. And imagine that straight line, the the, the length of that line is an antenna. And this is what's really amazing about electromagnetism is the wavelength coming off of a monopole antenna is four times the height or the length of the antenna. So you're basically, 
the way electromagnetism works is a square. And it's not the same as squaring, because squaring means you take the number times itself to see how many square units fit in that square. But nevertheless, electromagnetism is, in response to an antenna, its wavelength is four times its height, which is a square. So imagine grow, drawing infinite billions of squares. Well, hang on, hang on. Well, well, when, when, when you say a square, you mean four as in four sides to a square. Right, as in four sides. Not squaring, no, but a square. Because the, the, the length of the four sides of the squares is equal to the length of the wavelength coming off of it. That's how electromagnetism works. And notice that Einstein's formula is E, energy is equal to mass times the speed of light squared. Speed of light squared is, is different than the four measurements of the side of the square. But the four measurements of the side of the square are proportional to squaring, actually. So in a way, the universe has this cubic infinite fabric, these little cubes. Now, if you look at what's called the crystal lattice scale, of, for example, calcium, which is what your bones are made out of, on a crystal lattice scale, it's cubes with six pyramids inside the cube. So the very structure, in fact, gold is, is cubic centered as well, which means it's a cube with six pyramids inside the cube. And, a, and, and a cube is a double tetrahedron. Right, and a cube is a double tetrahedron. But they're, they're, what's amazing about what I'm telling you is this is the structure of not only electromagnetism and Einstein's formula equals mc squared, because squared and squares and cubes are all in this perfect mathematical proportion. That's how light and electromagnetism functions. It functions in the law of squares and cubes, actually, because Einstein's formula also goes to the speed of light cube. Now, just I want you to see this, because not only is your body made of cubes and pyramids, so were our temples. The Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple, which at the time of Moses was called the tabernacle, was a cube, 10 by 10 by 10 cubits, and at the time of Solomon, 20 by 20 by 20 cubits. Now, here's what's amazing. The frequencies that we are working with are the royal cubit as that monopole, that first line you drew on your paper, they, the wavelength is, is basically one royal cubit times four is the wavelength that we're operating at. We're, all the frequencies that we're working with are proportional to cubits. And it seems that the universe may function on these little squares and cubes of cubits and that this massively powerful antenna we're using may or may not even be necessary is what we're finding out with these little radios. So yeah, hang on there said, because I figured yeah. out now we're going through a new system because we're transitioning from Kinthea to another way to work with a website and other people like Keith. And I, it took me a while to figure out how to get this transmission, but Jimmy sent me, a video of our um, uh, Christmas Eve transmissions. So what David just described, if you were on the Muamua or anywhere in space between us and the Muamua <clears throat> with the right radio and the right antenna, 
This is what you would have heard. Okay, this is background. This is this is what we actually sent many, many times over the last month. So go ahead, David. So what I'm saying is, is I mean, for example, if I was an extraterrestrial, and, I, and we know from the U.S. Navy reports that they're clearly admitting that these things are flying in our skies, and they're, they're operating at, at functions of, and basically that don't make sense for any aircraft or any physical mass object to be moving through or interdimensionally around our planet because they're violating all the laws of physics. So the question is, how do they communicate with each other, right? And if I was an extraterrestrial, the first thing that would interest me would be our music, <laughs> believe it or not, <laughs> because music is, is I believe this, and I was talking to Thomas about this last night, is humanity's greatest achievement. Because without music, we probably couldn't feel very many emotions. Because remember, music is, is the artistic expression of very specific frequencies that took millennia to get really nailed down into a beautiful harmonic series of music scales that we, that we now use today. So what happens when we listen to music, we feel emotions, we feel like dancing, we feel like doing all kinds of fun things. Now, imagine a world where there's no music at all. So I think some of these extraterrestrial civilizations are that flat and dead and dry. They have super, super duper intellects. They figured out how to go faster than light, but they can't dance. <laughs> they can't feel anything. So they're, they're attracted to our music. I feel first, a movie I, coming on. <laughs> and I feel what's really funny to me is when I look at the response that we got, okay, we got, they sent us numerical values in these chirps on our radios with me holding up my frequency meter. They're blipping all these numbers at us. They sent us the speed of light. They sent us the Stonehenge the code in number 56, which is, which Maria Wheatley told us is the, is Stonehenge number one with the 56 blue stones. They actually sent us the North latitude of the great pyramid, which I forgot to tell you, because that's one in the same as the speed of light in 10 base. They sent us the most perfect Royal cubit there is. And to my, and, and a whole bunch of different cubits. What initially I thought were different cubits. And then I looked at the numbers again, and I said, this is a longitude and a latitude in 10 base. Wait, 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 and wait, wait. We just made a huge, huge, huge leap. When did you go from frequencies and fundamental hyperdimensional constants to lat longs? The way I went to lat longs is, is I've spent years looking at this concept that the latitude and longitudinal basically grid mapping of our planet actually exists in physics because if you watch the angular momentum of an electron around the nucleus of an atom it, it goes longitudinal and latitudinal 
it's it's going all over the place. It maps all longitudes and all latitudes. It it does every every single one of them. In in less than one second, it, it's ma- it's mapped a whole graphic um, sphere in in less than a second. So that means longitude and latitudes are real. They're not theoretical. And we also know from from remote viewing that longitude and latitudes can give a remote viewer the ability to tune into a target without knowing what it, what is at that location. And the question is, how does that function? So when I look at our rate of my radio spitting out all these numbers, I'm looking at these numbers and I have the way my brain works is, is numbers are like a language to me. I've, I've calculated thousands of electromagnetic frequencies based on, on waveguides, which means a temple is actually like the dimensions of a temple are actually like a waveguide. I, I, I literally decoded an entire music scale out of the dimensions of the Great Pyramid of Egypt, which is the most beautiful sounding music scale I've ever heard. And I've been doing this stuff for years. And when a muamua was noted in the media to have gone through our, you know, our solar system, and like you said, coming down at 33 degrees and coming within within a ratio of 1 to 6.18, the golden ratio number, to an, an astronomical unit and the, distance, the closest distance it came to Earth, I realized that these, this thing was functioning in some sort of a, of a musical harmony, actually. And in other that, words, like its said, trajectory was specifically designed to communicate these types of numbers and frequencies. And frequencies are music. So try to think of frequencies as actual music. And then, of course, after all this data comes in, and I'm looking at these all these other numbers, because there was more than just the, the speed of light, Stonehenge, the location of the Great Pyramid of Egypt, and the most perfect royal cubit, which resolves the height of the Great Pyramid to absolute perfection. It measures in the Dead, in the Dead Sea Scrolls Temple Scroll the, the innermost court of the Holy of Holies to perfection, and it, and it resolves um, the remains of, of uh, Noah's Ark found on Mount Ararat to absolute perfection, and, and all of which contains the golden ratio. So I started looking at these other numbers, and, I, and I'm saying these are longitude and latitudes in 10 base. So basically, longitude and latitudes are degrees, minutes, and seconds, but actually you can convert degrees, minutes, and seconds to to degrees and digital degrees. So I could have 20.605 degrees north latitude, and then I could have a longitude. So what, what happened next is, of course, Thomas Mathers showed up. And he is a world-class musician who did this incredible electronica music career and did a song... Um, with Paul McCartney that got him nominated for an Emmy. And when I started talking to Thomas, I went, Thomas was sent to us. He's part of the response because the universe found him. And we spent hours talking to Thomas on the phone. And and I realized he's part of the answer that was sent back to us, actually. And the, the, the function of music... See, what would beckon an ET response more? If I sent them a bunch of tones 
or I sent them a pictogram, or I sent them music. Now, we know that we can, we sent all three of those in our transmissions. In fact, we sent one of Michael E. Hill's songs to Amuamua as well, right? So the question is, which of the three triggered them? And, and their vast intelligence network, how did, of all the people, because we, we you know, of all the people that have responded, we we land we connected with Thomas and Thomas did this incredible song with Paul McCartney called 1985 and when you listen to it you know when I was listening to it with my really good stereo system here my my daughters were were jumping around like jumping beans having the time of their lives now if I sent my daughters the tones just the tones they wouldn't be jumping around having the time of their lives they'd just be sitting there going what is this do 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 you know what I mean? So consciousness seems to be activated by something emotional, something sensitive, something sensible, meaning it, it activates your senses and it makes you feel something. So that's basically in a nutshell where we're at. But 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 to to I can tell you right now, I know that there's that the longitude and the latitude repeated multiple times. So it's not random chance. And it's a specific location on the planet that this particular response came through on my radio. And I know where it is, but I'm not going to tell anybody tonight, that's for sure. Well, we don't want the bad guys to, to zap in and pick up whatever could be there. But it could be anything from an ancient library, a time capsule meant for now, or it could be, uh, you know, let's say an ancient abandoned spacecraft that's buried by natural forces somewhere under the ocean or on land somewhere. See, that's an interesting thing you're saying there, because if I was an ancient civilization and I, I wanted to come visit Earth and I looked pretty much human, I would park my ship somewhere hidden on the earth, somewhere remote, and then I would have it transmit all the time so that I could find it in case I, I forgot where I put it, right? So hmm. maybe all these transmissions we're getting on our radios it's, it's are like, coming like, from a... David, it's like that scene in Star Trek Four. remember? When Kirk gets out and he says, remember where we parked? <laughs> exactly. I, I, it's funny, I was on the set of Star Trek and I, I met all those guys in person. Star Trek, um, the one with the with the whales, you know. The, uh, yeah, that was Star Trek Four. Yeah, I was on the set of Star Trek Four when my good friend Michael Michael Thomas Mann got me on the set, and I got to meet everybody. I, I met Leonard Nimoy a number of times, and William Shatner a few times. So to, when you know, I, I I think Thomas Mathers also being a very creative mind has has shared with me some incredible insights about where we can go next you know and and you and i richard have been talking about your idea which is a brilliant idea to set up our radios in in multiple okay no, let's let's that's that, not give it away you know you've done the perfect uh, david segue. thomas david no this is ron yeah. i just sorry uh you, ron go ahead yeah, I just had one thought. Uh, you said it had, sit your ship somewhere on an isolated spot and uh, have it transmitting continuously. No, it would probably respond to a ping forever. You have to ping it. 
just like a yeah, computer. Yeah, but that's what we're doing. We're painting it. See, well, I, exactly, exactly. That's what you're, that's your, that's, we're yeah. painting it. Like, that's all. Says, our radios don't do anything unless we ping. Like, so I've got my radio on right now. It's been on all last night and all day, and it hasn't done one thing because I haven't sent out one thing mm. into it. And it's set oh. at a new frequency, actually. Okay. And over the last yeah. several days, I've had mine set at four one four four point one. It chatters away. I have to move it from the pyramid to the coffee table to by the couch to you know kind of activate it because it's right. very site specific within inches. But as soon as I try to record it, as soon as I hook up the cable to the computer, it shuts off. It's like whoever's mm. at the other end of the phone does not want to be recorded. The only successful recording I was able to do digitally by a wire was if I, when we actually transmitted, so someone broadcast back to us on that frequency and everybody else shut up and I could record anything anywhere and that period has is, is disappeared because we have not transmitted anything in like a week or two. Right. But remember, we can transmit through our radios. And the question is... Well, that's a whole other under- yeah, conversation. Okay. Yeah, when, but when you consider the, the possibility that there, these radios are... Again, we, going back, we note that Nikola Tesla and Marconi, it was reported in Collier's Weekly way back in the day of the time of Tesla and Marconi, that they were receiving the same type of little staticky blips on the radio systems they developed, and they thought they were extraterrestrials. They ruled out Morse code. So we know that what Jimmy Blanchett discovered is a rediscovery of what Tesla and Marconi experienced in the very foundational days in the birth of radio. So we also know that the God of Moses told him to put a, a copper fiery serpent, which is a coil, on a pole, which is actually what Tesla did when he built the first radios. Okay, hold it there. Hold it there. We're at the top of the hour. Uh, my guest this morning is David Sarita, Jonathan Womack, Thomas Mathers, Ron Gerbron. Keith, of course, Keith Morgan is with us. And we shall return. We're talking about how do you talk to an ET. When David said someone that looks like us, remember my model is that we're we're talking to us. We're talking to other members of the human family. And who would care more about human history, about ancient human history, than maybe members of the family? And as you heard David in the last half hour describe, the answers we have been getting are directly connected to us, to our own ancient history of ancient sacred sites around the world. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to this Saturday night, January 8th of 2022. Welcome to the other side of midnight. Um, we're talking about communicating with extraterrestrials, or in my parlance, with lost and distant members of the family. So what I'd like to do is to come on with um, Thomas. Thomas Mathers, come on down. <laughs> Hi there. Hi there. Okay, uh, that's a big build-up for a very interesting guy. Why don't you give us a kind of a thumbnail sketch of who you are and how you got into this strange company with all the rest of us crazy people? Um, yeah, well, I think it's sort of an interesting sequence of events. Um, I've been a... Uh, a musician since uh, I was a very small little guy and uh, was very lucky to make it a career and uh, a career which led me uh, to travel all over the world and um, throughout that time um, I guess on a sort of more personal level um, after some experiences in my early 20s which I would just describe as high strangeness it kind of opened up my mind and got me uh, interested in sort of learning a little bit more about this and a little bit about that. And that kind of took me down uh, the rabbit hole. And um, a lot of these kinds of topics that I found interest in uh, ended up becoming sort of the basis for uh, a lot of what I was doing with my music. Um, I think, you know, as David sort of alluded to, uh, you know, there's there's something very magical and special about uh, about music, and definitely when you're writing it, and when you're producing it, and you're sort of taking all of these frequencies and trying to turn them into a nice painting that's going to sort of tickle the brains of the people that are listening to them. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's a, it's a pretty deep process, at least. For me, artistically, it was a very deep process. So, you know, I've been in, very interested in technology since I was a little, a little kid. Um, and because of that, you know, 
um, just got interested in a lot of different uh, a lot of different areas. So I think it was you when we first sort of met had sort of said that you're quite a generalist and um, uh, and um, and it was kind of a very interesting sequence of events as to how I even got this particular that particular show when you guys were talking about this this uh you know some of the results and some of the uh the transmissions that were received um was actually in a telegram group and somebody posted in the telegram group um that you were live and that you guys were basically talking to to somebody out there and when I saw that, I had to click on the link and go, "This is this is crazy," and sort of did a little bit of a deeper dive. And then when I heard the uh, the transmissions, um, it really piqued my curiosity. And you know, because I deal and I have developed over the years um, a very particular ear, and you know, so when I'm taking a look at frequencies and when I'm taking a look at rhythms or the cadence of the human speech or things like that. Um, it's just something that I, I I kind of focus in and hone in on on details. So there were some things, you know, that I was listening to that you know intrigued me. And you know, you had sort of put a call out saying, hey, if there's anybody that uh, you know thinks that they could you know sort of assist in any ways to reach out. And you know, one of the first times I've ever just randomly sent an email out and <laughs> was very was very surprised to. Uh, to have a, uh, a you know a phone call from you in the middle of the afternoon, I believe I think it was on a on a Saturday or a Sunday or something. So, um, but in the uh, in the subsequent conversations, I think you know we you know we've all seen that we have this really deep desire to sort of you know see if there's something if there's something out there, and um, you know I think you know the the one of the areas that I've been really interested in and have been applying things into my music um, was specifically um, sacred frequencies, um, you know, concentrating on like the vibrations of like the holographic structure of, of like the ether of this reality. Okay. Let me ask a very uh, dumb question. What yeah. differentiates a sacred frequency from a frequency? Well, I think that the sacred frequencies basically can create um, – basically they can kind of uh, vibrate and, and create sort of like an amplitude um, – how, uh, how would I sort of explain this? But the, the amplitude would sort of multiply. Like the only way that I can kind of try to explain it would be, you know, when – you know, as somebody – I've been meditating, you know, uh, almost daily for, you know, probably around seven or eight years. And, you know, one of the things that I've, I've found through meditation is really constant, concentrating on sort of the vibrations. So, you know, there comes a point when, you know, like when you're kind of vibrating where you can kind of sort of feel this like amplification where the signal kind of gets more and more intense and more intense. Um, so kind of like a feedback loop. So I think that some of the sacred frequencies are basically, you know, having a physical or... I mean that's that's kind of another <laughs> another thing, but it's having an effect on the actual geometric structure of the holographic ether, and it, this is at least my my interpretation or my belief, and it's you know how I've I've sort of in the last couple of years have looked at sort of visualizing it. So, you know, obviously if you are right in tune in a specific frequency, you know you're going to vibrate that medium more than something that is 
you know, not, you know, um, sort of synchronizing with that, so with that geometric structure. It would, it would be a frequency to which humans, i.e. our consciousness, our bodies, our personas resonate to, which just kind of happen to turn out to be the same frequencies that are critically, critically important in the hyperdimensional physics model. In other words, these are frequencies which are part of the substrate of reality itself. Well, so, I mean, you know, I think, you know, the way that I've always interpreted it is that, you know, um, you know, in certain literatures, when you're talking about oneness and that everybody's connected, well, you know, we're connected because we're basically, you know, all comprised of the same fabric and we're resonating and we're vibrating and, and it's the vibrations, I believe, you know, that sort of materialize different, you know, whether it's, it's an atom or whether it's an electron or, you know, anything, um, you know, all the way up to larger, you know, multi, you know, like, like a human being or, you know, a planet or a star or something. Right. Mm. So, I mean, as a musician, I think there's something absolutely beautiful about the idea that the universe is basically just like a gigantic, you know, like, uh, probably more than three dimension, but like a multi-dimensional lake. And you've got all of these different droplets, you know, kind of vibrating and the vibrations are basically, you know, what we perceive as, as being, you know, of substance uh, in the, in the universe. So with nodal you know, points and resonances and patterns. Well, exactly. So exactly. So if we take a look at, um, you know, uh, like, um, uh, interference patterns or things like that. You know, you're going to have, you're going to have points in space. You're going to have points on a planet. You're going to have points, you know, on your body, you know, that, you know, are, that are conduits to, to sort of vibrate this, this sort of ether, um, you know, and, and that was, you know, these have sort of led into some of the conversations that I've had with you and David, you know, in terms of, you know, that there is, does seem to be, more than just a a uh, some type of a radio frequency the radio frequency is kind of establishing the intention the fact that there's these uh, oh, that we're broadcasting an awareness of certain important numerical structures that you know as difficult as they are to i think define and you know i think that we're sort of living right now through a moment where you know there seems to be a lot of disciplines that are uh, starting to to sort of intersect so um you know and that's and that's in my in my personal life is where i, I became very interested in sort of the intersection of sort of metaphysics and then the physical nature of, of reality and trying to understand what that connection is and you know i had been drawn to sacred sites you know through my travels with my music i've been able to visit sacred sites um, all over the world i've spent a tremendous amount of time i lived in south america uh, almost for five years and um, whenever I went to these sites, you know, would sort of collect rocks and meditate and do things. And, you know, it's, you know, for me, and I've had these conversations with, uh, with David so far, I, I, I come into this um, without having kind of formally ever studied under, uh, uh, you know, uh, somebody to, to teach me how to meditate. A lot of this has been just kind of self-exploration. Um, and I've done this you know, coinciding with, you know, the development of, of my music. So that kind of was really what gravitated me 
um, you know, into this. And I think that, you know, in our conversations, I sort of brought a little bit of a different perspective um, to things. And, um, you know, I do come from a very sort of logical uh, a logical background. So, you know, the interesting thing for me is to, you know, as we continue these these attempts and we sort of build upon, you know, what you guys have so brilliantly started, um, you know, that we start incorporating different uh, protocols, standardizations, and the methods of the, you know, basically incorporating some of the scientific method um, for us to really be able to kind of rule out, you know, are we picking up other signals? Is this some type of a, you know, uh, technology failure? Or are we picking up <laughs> interference or, or whatever, you know, to, to sort of be a little, you know, play a little bit of the, the, the devil's advocate and, and be incorporating things into the, you know, the, the testing protocols to kind of eliminate some of those, some of those doubts. And then obviously, and this is, you know, very self-serving, you know, really wanted, um, you know, an opportunity to, to take a look at some of these uh, sound frequency structures, um, you know, and, and try interpreting and, and analyzing them in, in different ways. And then I think, you know, sort of, uh, you know, where, where th I see things kind of developing right now. And, you know, I think as we kind of go along in the show, you know, we can sort of start, you know, breaking down a little bit what the, you know, sort of the next kind of attempts are going to look like. And, you know, what are we going to want to revise from the first attempt? You know, how are we going to want to, you know, analyze things, you know, the same way that I kind of, you know, found my way into the mix, um, you know, into this, is into this grassroots effort. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, open sourcing um, this initiative a little bit, um, you know, being very clear with people, you know, what are the frequencies that we're, that we're broadcasting on? What is it that we're broadcasting? Why are we broadcasting that? Um, you know, and, and sort of inviting people if they have um, antennas themselves, if they want to try it on a small ham radio, if they want to do whatever, if they want to, if they want to do it through a meditation or whatever, just, you know, opening this up so that, you know, when we do, the next event and the event after that, these, these communication attempts, the amplification of the intention of what it is we're trying to do sort of, you know, assists in, in sort of getting this message out to whatever, whoever, I mean, it's, you know, there, there isn't, I mean, I don't think anyone in any of the conversations has, has there even ever been somebody kind of, um, jumping to some kind of assumption of what or who we're hearing from. I mean, we're very much focused just on analyzing the frequencies. And I think, you know, that's something to be really, um, to be commended. And it's, it's, it's why I felt very kind of moved to reach out to you guys and, and sort of finding myself in the, in the mix with, in the mix with you all. And it's incredibly exciting. I think that, you know, with all of the chaos that's going on right now, um, you know, I, I would hope, you know, that some type of communication would be, uh, you know, established with the right intentions, you know, that this, you know, that this, you know, that knowledge, for example, as you were referring to the, uh, you know, to the theologians that, um, that NASA is looking for, um, you know, that this doesn't, this whole idea of, of humanity finding out that reality is much more strange than it already is and our reality right now is much more strange than it was even and extraordinary years ago. and encompassing and it's not stopped by national boundaries 
it's it's humans it's us and whatever is around us i mean you are such an yeah. exemplification thomas of uh you know that, one of those great movies the one with uh, uh the baseball thingy if you build it they will come you know because yeah. cause you showed up and you're the perfect you know i i must say you have exactly the right background and there's got to be more tjs out there there's got to be more thomases that will show up uh at, at the at the right time yeah thank you Keith. well Feel i do want to i do wanna, yeah i do want to just i i really want to thank you know the the community that i'm a part of that sort of put this on the radar um i mean that's the reason why i found myself there so i really got to give it to everybody over at the rabbit hole and specifically <laughs> soren um you know this is a, a group on telegram um, I'm speaking to him, uh, him or her right now, and they sort of made it public for people to join. But it's been somewhere where, you know, people are are comfortable sort of talking about all sorts of really amazing, amazing, uh, amazing stuff that's a little bit left of center. So I, I want to give those guys a, a thanks, and uh, I'm yeah looking forward to sort of getting into a little bit more of the the details that we've been working on over the course of the last. Um, the last week and a half or so um, just for any of the listeners out there um, you know what we're what we're in the process of doing right now is centralizing these the the sort of process of what we're going to be doing for the next uh, transmission I'll let I'll let uh, Richard sort of dive into what that's what that's going to look like but if people go to the website and to the files uh, under my name I've got a PDF there and it's basically some of the uh, some of the things that we're hoping to discuss a little bit this evening in terms of how we can refine a little bit of the approach um, and and I'll let Richard sort of kind of kind of let the cat out of the bag um, you know in terms of, in terms of what uh, what this next uh, communication communication attempt is going to look like but um, I mean this is this is a definitely a, a, a ramping up of things and if there are people listening um, it's going to be uh, the the next <laughs> the next attempt is is definitely if they're if you know they're looking out for the right things. They're they're going to be impressed with what uh, these little humans across the globe are are in the process of pulling together. So well, based on do. based on the results we've had so far, I think we're talking their language. The problem is, I haven't a clue tonight who they are. And to give you an example, I'm a very mainstream kind of guy. I mean, they, Art talked me into doing this show, and it's been an adventure and kind of, you know, letting it hang out on the edge. But my background is networks, television, NASA, etc. And I was brought up in the mainstream on what's called the SETI paradigm. SETI being the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, which is radio. You know, you get a big antenna, you send uh, a signal, uh, or you just, actually the paradigm is you you don't stand, you just listen, because there's people who are kind of afraid of, you know, letting anybody else know out there that we exist. Well, that cat has long been out of the bag, and, you know, that uh, uh, train has left the station, because with the advent of radio, Tesla, Marconi forward, and with the advent of the DOD and huge, incredibly high-powered radars to track Russian missiles coming over the pole, you know, we have been broadcasting at all kinds of frequencies, including television, commercial television, uh, AM, FM, radio. We've been broadcasting our presence to the stars for literally 
uh, over 100 years. So the presence of Earth and the presence of intelligent life on Earth, which can produce technology, is not a secret. We, we, we can no longer keep the Earth's presence a secret. Well, I think, I think if I could, yeah, if I could just sort of add to that, I mean, I think the, the difference being is that it's not just like a full spectrum of, of communications at this point. Um, I mean, and again, sort of relating this back to a little bit of my background, um, when I began to see that these frequencies were related to holographic and, and you know, uh, special types of primitive structures, right, um, in these ancient, a- ancient sites, but that you had similar, uh, similar symbolism in very geographic, like radically different geographic uh, areas. I mean, that was, it, it was, it really got me super interested in, 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 in this sort of aspect of things. So I think what's interesting about this now is that, and, and David and I had a, a really great conversation last night where we both sort of said like mass and these types of things are, it's sort of like the language of, of God to a certain extent. And like, I think sort of putting it out there that we are aware of these frequencies. We're aware of this physical structure or this, this hyperdimensional structure or beginning to understand the hyperdimensional. You said the magic word. Yes. We're broadcasting. If the physics is right, if hyperdimensional physics is real science, we're finally broadcasting from this little speck of dust frequencies that say, Hey, we know how reality works. And up until now, including all the SETI efforts or the military or the military industrial complex or the, the muse radars or all of that, nobody, as far as I know, has broadcast these specific frequencies and constants and fundamental geometries that our ancient, 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 ancient ancestors physically encoded in quote, so-called sacred sites all over the planet. Well, why are they sacred? Because they tap into the resonant frequencies of reality itself in the hyperdimensional model. To my background, I expected we would borrow Jimmy's antenna, we'd send a radio signal to Oumuamua, and eight hours, give or take, later, we would get some kind of message back. Not... (laughs) Within two minutes of him beginning the broadcast of our carefully prepared, you know, hyperdimensional package, which had constants and frequencies and lengths and musical tones and all that, and David can talk more to how it was encoded, suddenly UFOs started popping up like, you know, photobombing the antenna in northern Arizona for the next three hours as we kept repeating the same transmission every few minutes and we've got them on video and Jimmy has zoomed in so you can see they're not points of light they're structured geometric vehicles popping in and out of three-dimensional reality and we got radio transmissions on the little handheld radios right away well that right there kicks speed of light and standard earth physics and mainstream science into a cocked hat, rolls it up and stuffs it under the bed. Because we're obviously dealing with not one object in space, but a network of folks 
who were all able to listen and responded both in terms of these radios at these specific frequencies as well as by visibly showing up over the antenna site and appearing right in the beam aimed toward a muamua which was invisible in the dark two and a half billion miles away hours and hours before the signal could even get there so we throw away mainstream physics we look at the hyperdimensional model and that brings me to John Womack because John you have been preparing some very elaborate very interesting demonstrations on what your analysis of the first signals we got back and then subsequent signals actually might be trying to tell us and you've got some very interesting comparisons between what we received and have recorded now in a couple of different forms compared to other signals in our environment that we as humans would be familiar with. So, John, you're on next. Well, yes, we uh, received the signals on December 4th, and David described them as chirps. And then we received additional signals on the 24th of December, and those are clicks. So, what creature makes clicks and whistles and, <laughs> well, dolphins? So, um, like Star Trek IV, the message might not be meant just for humans. It might be directed at cetaceans as well. So I thought I'd do some comparisons. And um, in a perfect world, I would have... <clears throat> okay, we've got about four minutes to the bottom of the hour, but we'll pick this up on the other side. Okay, so continue. Sure, yeah, in a perfect world, um, we would have somebody with us, say, from SETI or that would have audio spectrum analysis software, which compared to the software I'm using, Adobe Audition and uh, a 3D visualizer, those are nice tools, but you realize when you look at the audio analysis software, you understand that Adobe Audition is geared toward vocals and music and and this kind of thing where the audio spectrum analysts, uh, the software is directed, uh, it's more for scientific study and analysis. And um, that's what they would have used like in the movie Contact when they deciphered the, the signal from ET. So that I don't have that software. It's not free, of course. It costs money. And I, w- I wouldn't know how to use it in the first place. So it would be nice if we got someone out there who has experience and they, they work with this in their, you know, their day job. And they could uh, analyze these signals we're getting, the chirps and the clicks. But uh, it's not a perfect world. <laughs> but in, uh, well, we have two minutes. Um, I'd like to do a quick review, Richard. This is from my perspective because sometimes you forget uh, maybe my idea or my suggestion or my contribution. And when I think about what we're doing right now with the Muamua, it takes me back three years to the month where I said, I'm an associate producer for a show. And I said to you, why don't we have David Sabrita on? Because I really enjoyed 
David, your video about the UFO tether incident, and it helps people understand that these aliens live in a higher dimension. They vibrate faster than we can see and so forth. So I said, let's have David Sarita on. And your email reply was, no ETs, no UFOs. I thought, okay. And then a few months later, um, you asked me to, to fill in for you while you were on leave. And you said I could have anybody I wanted within reason. So I'm like, hey, David Sarita, what you doing? <laughs> so, and since then, I think it's partly my influence, but I think Robin's passing also had um, a lot of uh, influence on you as far as I'll, opening I'll tell you what, up hold it there. To... We're, we're at the uh, bottom of the hour. Okay. We'll pick this back right up where we are. My guest this morning, John Womack, who you just heard speaking. And yes, he was the guy who suggested David. David and I actually have known each other, uh, you know, years back. Our paths crossed, so it was not totally unknown. I'm not quite sure I was that strict on let's not do, you know, ETs. Uh, UFOs are, that's a whole other subject anyway. Be that as it may, you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. Don't touch that. Richard C. Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out-there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19-point archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because 
We need all of you. And when I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Hoagland, over and out. back everyone on this Saturday night January 8th 2022 with the web telescope almost at the L2 point and in a few months the most extraordinary revelations timed for what could be an extraordinary revelatory year will commence now that's the upside The downside, and I think all our panelists tonight would agree, given that the DOD has now established an official office of UFOs, I mean, they call it UAPs, but what's in a name, you know, Shakespeare, et cetera, et cetera, they're UFOs, okay? And there's whoever's driving them, whoever's behind them, whatever civilization, whatever individuals. And I do not want the government to have a lock-on, a monopoly on interpreted contact with whomever is out there. And that's kind of one of the reasons why um, I I got behind the idea of of doing some of this ourselves, never expecting we would get the incredible rich harvest of information that we have now gotten so far. And we frankly, given the number of hours we've recorded and the scale and the complexity and the nested chirps and, you know, digital um, bits and blips that we're getting, I would never have expected the richness of this tapestry. And as John said before the break, we need help to help us decode what it is we've gotten, certainly as a prelude to what we're going to try to do next. And in the next uh, hour or so, We will talk in detail about the next plans in our, shall we say, ET communications effort. So in the meantime, John, back to what we have so far. What have you learned? What have I learned? Well, let's go back to November again, because uh, just as a reminder, and this is an an overview of how we got here, um, you asked me to contact Avi Loeb because... Oumuamua is in the news. Avi is on every talk show. You know, Good Morning America, I saw him. I, I saw him like on 10 different interviews. And so I wrote to him and didn't hear anything. You said try him again. Wrote to him again. Didn't hear anything. Like he's got something against Richard or, or <laughs> your show or something. And uh, <laughs> who else that is cool that would come on the show and is, you know, quote, famous and into UFOs and 
ETs and, and would be into this project with us. And I thought of Dan Aykroyd. And you said, do you know how to get in touch with him? And I'm like, gosh, no, there is there's no contact. But David Sarita is a friend of his. Uh, he probably has his. You said, oh, call David, see what he's doing. And so I sent David the email. And he's like, oh, we're, we're sending these radio signals, me and Jimmy. And then and then here we are. So I think it's very cool how this all came about. And um, sometimes getting snubbed by um, a celebrity like Abby Loeb is a good thing. Well, back to that movie <laughs> I talked about, you know, Field of Dreams. Make no, you know, if you, if you build it, they will come. I think the whole approach to Loeb is too early that we, yes, we, don't, we don't know yet what we're doing. And Greg, my friend Greg Matloff, who was on the show, you know, several weeks ago, he's given me now a list of mainstream radio astronomers that we can go to if we have a protocol, if we have a a strategy, if we have a series of things and results from our first efforts that are tabulated, written up in a professional format, A, B, C, very metonymic, very left brain. So we can get them to start with listening on the right frequencies after we transmit. Because it seems to me that, David, we need to transmit to get answers. That that's, you know, it's like the old, uh, you know, Masonic thing. If you ask the right question, you will get an answer. We had to ask the question. We had to send our queries into the cosmos to get someone to respond. Um, the, 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 the second thing I want to make sure we cover is when we get to the phase two, we're going to be involving <clears throat> a lot of people, ordinary people, that all they'll need is to pick up one of these radios, and we will devote programs to teaching people how to participate all over the world, and we'll get into some of those details uh, later on this morning. But what I want to go back, John, I want you to talk about comparing with your analysis some familiar terrestrial sounds, chirps, blips, squeaks, whistles, whatever, with what we've been getting from all I'll say is an extraterrestrial source, because again, this did not come back to us from Oumuamua at the limited speed of light. It came back instantly in the form of both radio transmissions on our dedicated frequency or frequencies, because there are two of them, and also a bunch of ships showed up, which is kind of like blatant, uh, guys, you got to get with the program. You know, we're, we're not limited to speed of light. We're not limited to lack of control of gravity. You know, we're kind of, Dan, what you're trying to say. And here's what is important as our response. And that, in part, has guided our development of this phase two that we'll talk about in detail in the next hour. So, John, back to you. Yes, and it's interesting to me because I view this from two different perspectives. One is the perspective of the aliens who live in higher dimensions. You could also say it's Robin's perspective because, you know, when you pass on, you you pass on to higher dimensions. You don't die. You're still alive in the higher dimensions. And Robin sees everything we're doing and what we're thinking and so on. And also here we are on a very 3D level using radio waves and 
waveforms to trying to code messages from ETs. And so it's an interesting dichotomy for me. Well, um, just to so, make one kind of parenthetical statement, whoever's out there talking to us, they're not talking to us in the form of visions or dreams or projections in our consciousness. They're talking through radio. So at the moment, I'm kind of thinking that we don't really need the radio to transmit. I like Thomas' idea about intention, and I would like to use a focused intention cadre of people all over the world, synchronized in terms of time, kind of thinking the same you know, message to see if we get responses on the radios to that. But the feedback loop, because we're such limited primitives, seems to be through these radios and that's the way to democratize in three dimensions this this communication with somebody Uh, well put yeah i agree so what i did uh, this past week i didn't have much time because i was really busy i got this crazy compulsion to set up a table in my living room and get a bunch of plaster and paint and build Very funny. <laughs> but, uh, I did manage to get some time in uh, in the studio here. So first what I did is uh, my item one, uh, there's a link there to an on- online spectrum analyzer. So anybody can go there to this link and you can upload your sound and put it into this analyzer and see what it looks like. And they have sample sounds too that you can listen to. One of them is a human whistle. And what you see in this waveform in item, item one, um, the bottom is the, uh, this is a Hertz waveform. So this is... Um, cycles per second. Cycles per second. And you can see that the whistle in these uh, bright yellow lines going across, that shows us that there is, when you whistle, we're hearing basically just one tone. There are some very light, there's a very light harmonic above the, mm. above the yellow. You see some So whistling lines. is almost like a pure frequency. And do you, can you actually play one? Can you play a sample? You can if you go to the online spectrum analyzer uh, and just click on whistle. They have, like I said, several sounds preloaded that you can listen to. And you can see that uh, it is, it's a a pure tone. There's not much going on other than the tone of the whistle. By comparison, the item number two waveform, you can see that the violin frequency has many harmonics. It's creating, you know, you're playing a note on a violin and the strings vibrating. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Vibrating. I, 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 you're making me work here. This is terrible. My uncle, <laughs> you're making me work. Okay. Here's the, uh, here's the whistle whose graphic uh, uh, spectrum analysis uh, uh, graphic is on, on the website as uh, John's item number one. Here's the whistle. At least it's supposed to be. Okay, see, this is what happens when you don't rehearse. Ah. Well, I could whistle if you want. No, no, no. no. Oh, I see what I have to do here. 
Okay, you can see and hear that that's really almost one frequency, one very narrow band of, of, of tones, right? Correct. Okay, let's go to the violin. Okay, here's what that sounds like. And that's your number two graphic, right? Correct. Okay, what do we got else here? Okay, here's an orca. An orca is a whale, really, so... Let me go find the orca. Here we are. Here he comes. And that's your number three graph. Yes. And you can see with the orca song that there are also multiple harmonics in addition to what we hear, this graph shows us that there are multiple wavelengths generated by the whale's tone. Right. Now, do we have the December 24th clicks? Because I don't have them ready. Do you? Uh, yes. It's um, one of my other items. I do have that listed here. So we can, if you want to listen to the December 24th clicks, it would be my item number i don't think i can play them from the website i don't think they're playable it's uh number seven. Oh, okay it's, let me scroll uh, down to seven let me go look i believe it's a youtube let video and bed okay it's seven a all right here's 20 seconds Oops. of the of the clicks now these are my digital recording right of the december 24th response to the transmission that Jimmy sent at noon mountain time. That's correct. Okay. So here's what our digital response on Christmas Eve to our transmissions sounds like compared to what you just heard. Okay. Now, why am I not hearing it? Damn. There is a, a few seconds before it starts. Oh, there we are. I'm not hearing an appropriate, no, something is filtering it. Hmm. Can you play it from there? Uh, I could. Yeah. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. As I will fill the time at the tone, the tone of the time (laughs) is, I I can play Big Ben, yes, yes. For some reason, you found it. Oh, there we go. That's about twenty seconds in real time. Of, of what I sent you on the of an hour, I recorded an hour, mm-hmm. and then I you know took fifteen minutes to figure out how to do the next hour, and then I did another hour. Then I waited for the speed of light to get the signal back, and then I did 
time straddling the Oumuamua speed of light time back to Earth. So we have a lot of data from the 24th, the 25th, the 26th, and David recorded it audio, and I recorded digital, and they don't sound the same. Why not? Well, because it's language, and our language doesn't sound the same. When you look at number my item number four, it's the December 24th clicks. I just uploaded that to the online waveform analyzer just for fun to see what it would look like when I put it through theirs. Because the, this online analyzer is a lower resolution. It was developed by some, uh, some students at, at a university, and hats off to them for doing that. But uh, you can see in number four that as you go from the bottom to the top, these red columns are broken up. It's not one tone like you have with the whistle. Mm. It's more like the dolphin. There are higher harmonics. So, And these are just click sounds that they just sound like clicks to us. And... Just like in the movie Contact, that just sounded like, you know, it's just noise. It doesn't sound like communication. It doesn't sound like instructions to build a spaceship. <laughs> no, it's just noise. So, so item number five, I, um, I, I went to my library of sounds and picked out a dozen or so dolphin communications. And this one is... Uh, Clicks, chirps, and, and a whistle. And so far from a muamua, we've received clicks and chirps, and maybe we'll get some whistles at some point. But you can see the waveform of those three distinct sounds. And in number... Hang on, hang on. Describe what I'm looking at. I'm looking at green wavy lines up top. I'm looking at red and pink. Uh, weird stuff on the bottom and on the far right I'm looking at what looks like a frequency uh, sawtooth jagged curve yes the the green chart is the amplitude and on the bottom you have the the frequency so are these of the chirps the clicks or the whistle well the the clicks are the first half and then it goes to the chirps. Ah, see that? Thin. You need to say that or write it down somewhere. Okay. Ah. I, I, I feel like people would just know this. No, they won't. They no, don't. no, no. Your average milkman like me does not know what I'm looking at. So think of me as a very dumb person to look at this stuff. You've got to explain it so I get it. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, for example, in the, the Hertz waveform, on the right side of that, right. these are the whistles. I find that very interesting because you can see that is, there is, are many harmonics. Is, is that the human whistle we heard before? Uh, no, a dolphin whistle. Oh, a dolphin. Okay, well, we've got, mm -hmm. got to talk about that. Okay. Now, if I play 5A, will we hear these? Oh, um, yeah, says, you can click on it that. It says noise.wave. All right, so this is a wave file. So why am I not hearing? Okay, that's why I'm not Start it again. Uh, 
Now the clicks are a muamua. The clicks are the dolphin clicks. Oh, see that I didn't know. That's why I have to ask. So this is all dolphin language. Yes. Ah. Now, well, there's that's... an unknown element to this. I don't know if the dolphin clicks were recorded underwater. I would say the chirps were recorded above water. Right. Um, the whistles could have been underwater as well. And Okay, here's, here's, here's the time to in, insert some news. You know how the networks all have breaking news, breaking news. Okay, other side of midnight, breaking news. I have been in contact with someone who actually works with dolphins, who is going to be very receptive to getting our signals, gentlemen, and playing them for the dolphins under their care, and will video the response. Nice. Okay, now that's a work in progress. All I can say is that line of communication has been opened, and we'll, we'll report... Uh, probably next week where we are with it. But this does almost sound like cetaceans talking very much like some of the clicks that I recorded. Very curious. Absolutely. I have a vaguely relevant uh, thought here. Okay, you're way over my Am I on? Me? Yes, you. Okay. Is that what better? Yeah, it's, it's oh, yeah, I, You're on the wrong pot for me, so I have to turn it down. Okay, go ahead. Okay, I will speak softly. Now, all I know is this: all this stuff with the clicks and the whistles and the harmonics. Uh, I wanted to say this, but this seemed like the moment. The uh, a long, long time ago, for all of you out there that are under fifty, who probably won't remember bookstores. But there used to be this metaphysical bookstore that I hung out at, and they played weird foreign music. Over you mean their, like uh, Poetry? Uh, well, it was called the Unicorn. It was in La Jolla, but it's. Oh, okay. um, and they play. I walked in one day, and they were or one evening, and they were playing uh, music from the Andes. You've all heard this. I mean, uh, Art got fascinated with the Andean music, and then he started playing um, whatever that commercial band's name is all the time. Uh, but uh, this was the real thing, played on those panpipe, um, uh, like flutes, you know, where they each note has a separate tube, and you move your mouth around and go, right. do, 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 do. yeah. And I listened to it for like five minutes, and I just, I wasn't thinking of such things. So I went, well, that's the music of Atlantis. It has to be. It has to be. There was something so pure and fundamental about something that was built just on those tones that way. And just and you, you, well, It wasn't the ethereal part. It's, the, it's just the way that it sounds and it's balanced. If, uh, the, uh, everybody has heard it, even though they don't know that, because that was uh, Paul Simon got fascinated with that kind of music himself, and he hooked up with a band that called themselves Urubamba, which is the sacred river that runs through Ecuador. And um, the... Um, uh, so the the uh, everybody's heard everybody's heard the songs off of his albums that had him backing, you know, like uh, 
da 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 da. Well, never mind. You don't want to listen to me hummer anything. But yeah, people are going yes, yes. Those guys. Uh, but anyway, they do have an album that he produced for them uh, that came out after that, but uh, which is, should be easy to find. But the uh, uh, there are there's plenty of music from the uh, the absolutely ethnic bands like the Calchakis and the Chacos. Uh, if you just look it up, they came out of French record labels, and uh, you can download tons of it as much as you as much as you want. And there's something hypnotic and uh, ima- uh, just magic about yeah, it. Yeah, except I mean, we're not listen. hearing we're not hearing pure tones. We're hearing complex multi waveforms that sound to our ear like chirps and clicks until you True. spread them out and slow them down and, you know, really get into the guts of the frequencies. Well, that's the time frame. You know, it's just the, uh, you slow them you slow them down. You can put them into what we can hear. But I, I have no doubt that uh, other sea creatures, some at least, um, have some capability of recognizing and hearing them, you know, because that's part of their usual environment. They don't hear CNN blaring in the background. They hear the dolphins and the whales communicating, hmm. and so yeah, they might you, know. So they might. Yeah, we're 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 basically coming up to the top of the hour. So everybody, hold it there. Um, I will do this, okay, and I will do this. Um, this conversation is going to expand radically in the next hour or so as we talk about what we're going to do next based on what we have found so far and the ongoing analysis to find more. My guests this morning are Ron Gerbron, who was just talking, and John Womack, who has done a splendid job of uh, analyzing in various ways and comparing what we've got so far. Uh, David Sarita, our numbers man, our go-to numbers guy. And, of course, Tom uh, Mathers, who is a new member of the team, with some very interesting ideas, which we will get to in the next hour. You're on the other side of midnight. We're talking about ET communication with someone out there. And when I say out there, we may not be dealing simply with outer space. We may be dealing with higher dimensions, including people who are no longer here. We shall return. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. 
filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Saturday night now. Sunday morning, Saturday, January 8th, grading into Sunday, January 9th. My God, nine days into the new year already. And we've just unfolded the Webb Space Telescope. Oh my God, is that going to give us something to really crow about? Wait till you see. Tonight we're talking with our team, part of it anyway, about communicating with Whoever is out there, whoever answered the phone, because frankly, there's no way to know whether it was, you know, photo guys on uh, a Muamua or an AI or a robot or the facsimile of a Bracewell probe, because it doesn't follow the ordinary SETI rules. It's definitely faster than light. It seems to be preoccupied with what you're thinking. And every time I try to think about recording what's coming in, the damn radio just shuts off. I mean, I've never, ever listened to a DJ who did not want me to record what they were doing. They don't know what I'm doing. Whoever is on the other side of this technology knows what I am thinking. I mean, let me repeat that again. Whoever is on the other side of this technology, whether I put the radio in the pyramid or I put it on the coffee table or I put it on the little table next to the couch, it knows what I am thinking. And as soon as I think I'm going to record this or try, it completely shuts down and will sit there with the wires connecting it to the computer absolutely silent. I take the cable out, it starts chattering away. That is not normal, which means we cannot approach this as a normal scientific project. Yes, we can provide scientific protocols, but we must create out-of-the-box thinking for confirming and duplicating and democratizing the signals are getting. My guests again, David Sarita, Tom Mathers, and John Womack. John, let's quickly go through some of the rest of your stuff, and I want to open it up to discussing what do we plan to do next. Hmm. Okay. Well, number uh, 5B is another waveform of a dolphin chirp, because what I wanted to do is compare the dolphin chirps to the Oumuamua chirps and the clicks to the clicks. So 5B is um, dolphin chirping. 
You know, just like, uh, what was that show back in the 60s, Richard? Flipper. Flipper. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. And so you can see on 5B that the chirp, uh, the green part is the amplitude. It's a very, you know, it's a distinct waveform. And you can see in 5D that the December 4th chirps, indeed, the amplitude waveform matches it resembles pretty damn close it's pretty damn close and same with the the frequency the the hertz waveform and if we go down that that is not to say that the other end of the phone there are dolphins okay let me be very clear (laughs) okay but but dolphins normally are recorded underwater by researchers and the speed of sound is much higher underwater than it is in air so if you if you record a chirp from a dolphin underwater, it'll sound highly compressed. What we're getting from the radios sounded to me, first time I heard it, highly compressed. That's why I said, let's try to slow it down. That's an analog. It doesn't mean there are dolphins at the other end of the phone or the radio. It simply, to me, says that the frequencies that are being sent to us are accelerated in our time frame like recording dolphin chirps underwater. Hmm. Exactly. And uh, moving along, number six is an image of a dolphin click and just zoomed in. Hmm. The top green part is the amplitude waveform and the bottom is the hertz and the, the graph on the right is simply a sawtooth, as you called it, Richard. It's just a zoomed frame of where the playhead is at that point. Ah, I see. Okay. The, yep. the, the vertical red line. Yeah. Okay. The, the, on the right is the amplitude. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. zoomed in on the amplitude there. So mm-hmm. um, we have the dolphin click there. And then on 6A, we have the December 24th click that's an amplitude waveform as well and you can see this is, that this is the Oumuamua response Oumuamua and, response and we're using Oumuamua in a generic sense because frankly I could not prove tonight if someone were to stand me up against a wall with a blindfold I could not prove that we're getting signals from Oumuamua I think it's much more general I think it's the whole damn neighborhood it's like a party line or in technical parlance back in the 1930s a brilliant physicist named Paul Dirac propose something called a Dirac transmitter receiver, which could receive frequencies from all over the universe uh, in excess of the speed of light at the subquantum mechanical uh, levels. And I think that's the party line that we've tapped into. And the folks who are responding are kind of using that frequency when we send a query. Very interesting uh, coding and deciding who who the intended audience is. Anyway, continue, please. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head, Richard. Um, now, if we get on to earlier, uh, we played the clicks from December 24th. It's a 22nd sample of clicks. That's from a one-hour recording that um, you did around noon on December 24th. Mm-hmm. So what I thought I would do next is, like you said, Richard, slow it down and just start digging in and playing so I, 
I used a, a filter. It's called uh, time and pitch, and you can use it to slow down the playback and the pitch at the same time. And the image of that waveform, after I applied that to this 20-second sample, you can see how it, the waveform is changed. It's stretched. Are we talking yeah. 7B? 7B. Okay. That highlighted area is the slowed down clicks on December 24th. So you can see that the this you know like David said the other week this looks like language this looks like somebody's singing or they're playing an instrument or they're having conversation or something to that effect this isn't just random clicks so you can listen to that okay I can probably try to play it but I bet it's not going to work here because we're having a technical problem let me try yeah, I'll see it's barely registering. Can you play it? Uh, yeah, I can play it here. Okay. And fire this baby up. If I can interject just for two seconds, those sure. first, the first half of those samples um, actually sound like they've been reversed. Um, when it goes to the faster clicks towards the end of the, the isolated time period um, yeah. that you just played, it sort of goes back to normal. But the, the extended ones, definitely, it would be interesting to, to sort of isolate the, that other part and try reversing it and see how those mm. the, the, the clicks register. So you want to do the I buried Paul bit with it. <laughs> well, actually, it's, kind of, it's, it's, it's like yeah. John, John David Oates. Because way back when Art and I were working with John, you know, I got really into the whole reverse speech thing, and I spent like a whole weekend at John's place listening to a lot of recordings. And I, I said to him at that time, and I'm going to bring this up again, Tom, because I think it's a, it's a brilliant insight. What if John David Oates' backwards speech was really from another dimension and the time rates between us and that are flowing so differently that we're literally hearing things backwards? And I think the same idea applies to this. What if we're hearing the frequencies backward because of the time differential between where it's coming from, another dimension, and where we're receiving it, which is here. Well, the interesting thing about what he just played is that um, not all of the samples sound like they've, that they're reversed. Um, so I'm very familiar with stretching out uh, samples and speeding things up and slowing them down and reversing them. I, I do a lot of sound design, and you know, these are certain sort of manipulations. You realize that what you do. you've just done, right? You've laid out a protocol for your own work on this. <laughs> You've raised your hand and volunteered. <laughs> but no, you want to use the sound. You, you got to, because um, these are, this is pure digital versus yes. going through the speaker. And the speaker has a little more 
warmth. I, I know chirps aren't warm sounding. Well, we need to again, do both. We obviously need to do both. Okay? We also talked about time dilation, and and I like to do some of the slowdowns that vary. Well, wait, wait. Let's let, 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 let us get to the end of John Singh here because he's done a okay, okay. hell of a lot of work, and then I want everybody to respond, particularly Tom. But I want him to get through what he's done because he's done a hell of a good job here. Oh, thanks, Richard. You're welcome. Now the one we just yeah, I just want to say you've done a hell of a good job. I've been listening. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you've done, you've done a good yeah, you've done a you've done a good job of working with these. It's it's actually quite useful to be able to see the visual representations with what you've done with the audio. Oh, cool. Thanks, Thomas. Um, now what we just listened to that was slowed down fifty percent. Then I went in 7D. I slowed it down 200%. Cool. And I added cool. some uh, eight semitones, which are half notes, like A to A sharp would be a semitone. Now we're kind of talking close encounters language. <laughs> yeah. So do you want me to? Yes. Yes. So wait a second. Let me just make a quick point here. See, with a pure digital signal, let's say I, I give you. 35 hertz, pure digital. And I, with that, I ring an aluminum bar, an iron bar, and a gold bar. They're all going to sound different because the, the feedback through the different materials will have a different level of warmth or coldness. And so, therefore, I think the digital signal you're hearing is pure digital, whereas when you run a digital signal through a speaker, it also depends on what the magnet's made out of. Well, you get overtones and harmonics and, you know. Yeah, it's totally different because in music, it's the same. Like horsehair and a violin, it's going to sound different than plastic strings, right? And so the quality of materials in response to frequencies is very unique, even though you can have the same frequency. On a but is hair. that part of the intended message, or is that <clears throat> basically very McLuhan-esque? In that the remember, me- I'm the medium- pulling out numbers. I'm pulling out numbers with a frequency meter that are two decimals accurate. That's so, true. That's true. Now, have you see, heard of we Earth we need to do Christmas? the same thing with the digital? We need to see if you get frequencies with the digital, and maybe they're an overlay or a harmonic or a subtext or you know another channel. Oh, yeah. You're, you're- you're right, but see, also, there's something called earth whistlers. There's space sounds. Yes. And one, one thing that's interesting about earth whistlers, and I, I put a link to them on um, the chat there, is, is they're continuous. And again, these chirps are not continuous. And no. They, they, your radio will go quiet all day, like mine's been quiet all day at the frequency I have. Mine's it chattering anyway. away like a damn monkey until I want to record it, then it goes totally silent. Totally. Right. So that means person. We've talked about this before. We're seeing personality. Consciousness does not want to be recorded. It's like, okay, you can record your own stuff, but leave our stuff alone. Our stuff is is private. Our stuff is is prioritized. Our stuff is uh, what what's that word I'm looking for? Um, um, Privileged. In other words, it's not democratic. It's like we're we're tuning in on a party line, and they say, okay, you can listen. But if you want to record it, no way. And they cut it right off, which is insane. It's not the way radio is supposed to work. No, because we're not dealing with radio. Remember, a radio is just an interface. I mean, if we didn't have music to play on the radio and we only could listen to the news, I don't think (laughs) it would be very popular. I don't either. Okay. Well, what's interesting is it kind of – 
let's let yeah, John finish. That it's sort of, okay, and, yeah. and, and then we'll have, you know. Because like, we're a really excited bunch of chipmunks here who want to respond <laughs> to Jonathan. <laughs> well, no, it's just, just, just going along with what you guys just said is it's sort of like the, um, uh, like the double slit experiment where if you don't have somebody that's actually observing that it actually affects the outcome of the experiment. So, like that's interesting that you're to... saying that <clears throat> okay. a female body will respond to a sound vibration different than a male, and a, and a fat person will sound different than a skinny person. Their response to what they're hearing will sound different, actually. Hmm. And okay. So, so anyways, I just want to interject there, Richard. Everybody yeah, wants to say one more thing. John, come on. <laughs> All right, 70, I'm just going to go ahead and play it here so you can hear. This is slowed down 200%. These are clicks uh, now, my digital clicks. Yes, Okay. this 20-second sample. Recorded on December 21st, probably right around noon when Jimmy started the transmission. Yep. 20, 24th, not 21st, 24th. Oh my God! Is that crazy? There's information nested. No, no that's, that's sounding like a contact signal. Right, it yeah. ends with a, a a final sharp, and that's how when you talk, like I say the word talk, the T is sharp, and t- the K is is you know a little sharp, but you know it has a little resonance at the end of it. I John, think that's for. Yeah, John, let me ask a very, very uh, dangerous question on real-time live radio all over the world. Can you easily reverse that now live for us? Um, no, I'd have to okay. maybe okay. do it during the break. Okay, all right. We we have like an hour and 20-some minutes or whatever. We, we might try to – because I really am now intrigued as hell as to what this sounds like. If these are reversed, what do they sound like forward? Well, remember yeah. the the Arabs read right to left; we read left to right. So yeah, but time the, the, reversal is not something people do. They can't do. No. All right. So this is not like Arabic script. This is this is tonal. This is this is time. This is maybe someone's deliberately reversing it to teach us about time differential. Wait a second. Yeah. We need to run this underwater, and there's a reason for it. See, there's a reason sound travels faster underwater, and that's because it's the density it, it, it of water. Well, it's not only the density; it's the interconnectedness of the fibers, and and that's what I'm seeing with these squares and cubes as a matrix of what we're dialing into. You know, I don't think you, if you understand the idea of of action at a distance. Einstein's action at a distance, and and Dirac's sea of negativity, which there's there's no resistance to movement. It, everything's instantaneous. So it, it's possible that these radios, whoever made them, and the reason why the FCC banned the sale of them, <laughs> and because they're doing the same thing that Tesla and and Marconi, you know, were tuned into. Um, we we could be tapping in with these with specific frequencies to a, a cubic matrix like millions and millions and millions of infinitely fine it's like a web it's literally like a universal wide web and if you have a universal wide web and you pluck a string in the interconnected web it's faster than light 
Well, it's the original it World Wide Web, except it's a universe wide web. It's a universe wide web. That's what I'm saying. But it doesn't rely on the speed of light at all. No, it's the torsion field, i.e., the ether. Okay, <clears throat> I think that everybody wants to talk, so we've got about uh, 10 minutes to the bottom of the hour. Um, what do you hear, Thomas, that kind of, you know, you know get, gets your blood racing in terms of things you now think of that you might do to help us understand this better? Well, I think, uh, you know, the important, like, again, like, you know, when I was mentioning about the reverse, it's it's very much just, you know, if you recognize what a reverse sounds like, you know, when that has been slowed down, some of those um, uh, seem reverse. You know, the the initial, uh, I guess, quality of the, the signal um, that I think got me very interested was really about the rhythm and the cadence of the chirps. Um, when you work with audio for a long time, you mean you like, very... like, like as a, as a series of code, what, not so much a code. It's just more of like the flow. So, so it's, well, not no, when, when, not... when, when you listen to a really good operator doing Morse, there's a mm-hmm. music to it. It's not, it's not the dots and dashes. It would, it's the it rhythm like of the operator. Exactly. Like, exactly. uh, Bobby, what's so you name? They call it his hand. Well, you, what I'm getting at is that you become familiar with what is going to be kind of like a digital artifact, okay? Something that like a digital circuitry would, would do. Um, I mean, it's very, it becomes glaringly obvious to somebody who's been listening to a lot of sound to differentiate uh, a sound source from an analog source versus a digital source. But what really got me curious about this um, before you know, processing this and slowing it down, which is important because, you know, again, the, the chirps are such a, it's such a fast sort of signal. Um, you know, the, there are algorithms that are time stretching this. So you have to take some of that into consideration. But the thing that still is very interesting to me is that the general feeling of the cadence, the rhythm of the flow of this does not feel mechanical. Mm. So it does not feel like it does not feel like mm. a mechanical source. There feels, and that was the it was the first thing that I like that the first time that I heard heard uh, you guys playing this at the full speeds. It was the first thing that I noticed. Um, it almost had the cadence of somebody talking, you know. Um, well, that was David's impression. He said exactly. his language, and it's interesting it's, that he has the same impression because that yes. implies, like you know, when you're listening to a couple of you know women talking or chattering with each other it's like birds talking right like you know it has a rhythm to it i know what thomas is saying the chauvinism over humanity complaining about men humanity complaining about men and they're and they're just sitting there and they have this vibe to them he's right that there's no repeatable reliable you cannot mathematically quantify even if i measure the spacing between the chirps they're all out of phase with each other, which is how people talk. Yeah. And some and I mean, people think... talk very predictably. Like some people are very monotone sounding, you know, when they're talking, like especially a scientist would be. Um, <laughs> if you don't have well, a lot of personality, you know, when you're talking. Um, 
I mean, from the rhythm, you can interpret you can interpret emotion. I mean, you could just take a singular note or a singular sound, and and sort of catch the rhythm of a conversation. And you know, when people are stressed out, they speak more quickly. And there's there's certain things. So it is kind of it, it is kind of a feeling. Um, you know, what I think is is kind of interesting is, and, and this kind of goes back to. Um, again, what you were mentioning, Richard, in terms of, of uh, wanting to compare um, the digital source versus uh, an ana- analog sampling from from the radios. Now, you know, as we discussed this past week, obviously you've got technical limitations in terms of what the radios are able to produce through their speakers. Their speakers are going to have a technical specification in terms of what their frequency range um, is going to be. Um, that being said, you know. I think what is what's interesting here is that the intention, the frequencies, the math connecting back to this again this what David was alluding to in terms of this sort of you know this cubic uh, and and I can sort of expand on that into uh, sort of a hyperdimensional uh, matrix, right? Um, this would allow some type of like a, a hyperdimensional tunneling or quantum tunneling, which would explain how some of these signals are being received much more quickly than coming back at the at the at the speed of sound. But exactly. now that we've really now that we've really um, been able to take a look at some of these slowed down um, and sort of going through it together, um, it is very interesting how these how they're behaving. Okay. Um, because this is, uh, I believe, uh, John, this was, this was pulled from, from Richard's digital uh, recording, right? This was not pulled from, the, from David's analog recording, correct? Uh, it was pulled from Richard. Well, Richard sent me an MP3, and I converted it to a wave. So, but yeah, but it's is, Richard's is digital, and mine is sound, and there is a big difference. Exactly. So this is what's interesting is that when you when you have slowed it down, which is sort of giving you a little bit more time to analyze each individual chirp, um, the picture of each individual ones, you know, are very are very different. So, I mean, it really does warrant some further investigation to really be taking each individual uh, chirp and time stretching, running different sort of uh, things through it. I think that. Uh, you know, in this next week, that would be something that um, that I could help uh, help out with as well. Um, Fantastic. Sort of would it be neat doing... to run it underwater and see what yeah. it sounds like underwater? Yeah. I, again, I mean, the thing the thing with that is that you're sort of then um, you're reproducing the sound through like a speaker. So we we yeah, you're, to... you're adding a level of noise to me. You know, it might be exactly. interesting qualitatively, but to me, it's what we're getting is pure, and to me, the best purity is the digital, and the other, the overtones, the numbers. Uh, yes and go ahead. Yes and no. Yes and yes and no. I mean, I think on the surface you could uh, on the surface you could say that, but there there comes some other sort of interesting um, effects that happen when you're talking about sampling a analog source. That's why I think as we move forward with this. Um, it's very important that we sample both. Which is the perfect segue to what I want to talk about in the next hour, which is what the hell are we going to do next? And we've got some really exciting things planned, and you're going to be part of them. 
So we'll kick that off in this way. Do not touch that dial. In your mind you have capacities, you know, to tell us half messages through the vast unknown. Please close your eyes and concentrate with every thought you think. Upon the recitation we're about to say Calling occupants of interplanetary craft Calling occupants of interplanetary most extraordinary craft to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month. 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, now Sunday morning, Karen Carpenter, a song which I think is going to become very, very famous, even more famous than it was back in the 1970s, in the not-too-distant future, because if we can quantify and kind of systematize what we're getting, and if we can decode beyond the numbers that David has been able to pull out of this data stream, extraordinary numbers, numbers which led us to, among other places, 
ancient terrestrial monuments on earth. It actually may be much more than we are your friends. It may be we are your cousins. You know, what's interesting about this song is that she talks about with your minds. One of the things we're going to do, and we're going to talk about this momentarily in phase two and phase three, we're going to try to do this without radio at all. Maybe the radio is a feedback mechanism, recording, video, sound, audio. But we may be actually trying to send messages by intention. Isn't that an interesting idea? For hyperdimensional beings at the other end of an interstellar phone. What an age we're living in. 2022. And you know, the most amazing part of this is that we're doing it for real. We've got real messages. We've got real data. We've got real waveforms. We've got real information. We've got real contact with someone or something. And all we need is to find out who. Okay, the time has come to talk of cabbages and kings and sealing wax and many things. And one of those things is, what do we plan to do next? So let me invite the panel back in and let me give a little setup, okay? All of us, John, myself, David, um, Thomas, I mean, everyone who's kind of gotten roped into this fascinating vortex have thought because... We're getting feedback in terms of ancient sacred sites. It kind of became a consensus, particularly after uh, we got the first transmissions back from the moon, which basically said, Stonehenge, Stonehenge, look at Stonehenge. And then we got Marie involved. And Marie, of course, has been working with John and leaped off at warp nine and now has two radios. And what we're going to do 
And we're going to do it on the 4th of February at dawn in Great Britain. Well, actually about 8 a.m. because uh, English Heritage wouldn't let her and her team in any earlier. We're going to have Maria in the center of Stonehenge transmitting probably via a recording piped into the mic of the radio or maybe an audio trigger where it's playing and then she just, you know, keys the mic. We're going to transmit the same information with maybe some modifications that we sent out to Omua over the last several weeks. And then we're going to have other participants at other sacred sites around the world with these handheld radios receiving and recording responses on what I would think of as the, not the old boy network, but the old ancient boy network. And we're going to compare the responses, overlay them in time, and see if we get the same responses to each recipient in their own sacred site, sacred space. And remember, science is nothing if it's not prediction. So I'm thinking that what we might get will be very tailored responses depending upon which person is in which sacred site and why that site is significant to the ancient history of the human race and who we really are. What I asked Tom to do, since he seems to be most organized of all of us, is to lay out a protocol for doing this literally on paper. And although it's not technically on paper, it is actually on the other side of midnight. And what you want to do is go to the other side of midnight, click on tonight's banner, which is a mua or someone answers. Click on that. That will take you to the guest page. Click on Thomas for fast links. That will take you down to his document a PDF document I want everyone to open and then download. And Tom, you are now going to tell us what it is you envision for phase two. Okay, thank you. So, um, you know, I think the, the, the most important part of all of this, and this was one of the first things that you and I uh, discussed, Richard, um, and what's going to be amazing about this whole process is that we we are going to be able to, in a very transparent way, uh, demonstrate different chains of custody and be able to sort of establish different protocols in terms of how we're capturing some of these uh, these signals. And I think in our conversations, we sort of realized that if we are to garner more attention and get more people specifically people that may not think outside of the box too often. Um, You know, I'm sort of pointing my fingers more towards academia. Um, You know, one of the best ways for us to be able to, to pique people's uh, curiosity and get their attention is again, to, I think, be able to apply a little bit of the, uh, the sort of science uh, method, the scientific method uh, for us to, to, to be doing this. So as this is coming together and uh, with, with David's amazing analysis of the, of the numbers, which I think is, 
if there is going to be any kind of data information that's going to be transmitted, especially in a very uh, short sort of like chirp, um, I think that the what David's uh, found and what he's seen in these responses is incredibly important, and it has kind of unraveled and sort of leading leading us all deeper down this this sort of this path. So, um, for people that are oh. Sorry, my cat just knocked over a lamp. <laughs> um, Wants to be part of the conversation, obviously. <laughs> he, he does, apparently. Um, so one of the first things that we, that David and I talked about was uh, taking a look at, one, uh, potentially looking at broadcasting outwards on, and I'll let David sort of uh, sort of dive in here. If if it's okay, I'd like to just kind of bounce this back and forth because you know there's things that I think he can much more eloquently uh, go into um, in, into and explain. But you know, I get again. I think you know um, the outward frequency. We had some ideas in terms of of you know what frequency uh, what frequency we can trans, uh, be transmitting uh, out of. Uh, and then the original signal, which, again, I think is something that we should include as part of, uh, uh, include as part of subsequent transmissions, and then build upon this. Um, I think one of the, I, I, I would believe that one of the reasons why we're getting some type of response, or there's this these beginning building blocks to some type of communication um, is really because of the awareness and us um, sort of incorporating different elements that relate back to uh, some of these sacred frequencies, the sacred geometries, the sacred sites. So, uh, you know, for the next broadcast... In other words, the hyperdimensional physics. Precisely, precisely. I mean, what we want to be doing is trying to tickle that that sort of hyperdimensional matrix um, and and allow for us to be able to receive with our very primitive <laughs> technologies uh, signals that could be coming through some type of a hyperdimensional tunneling uh, again and again uh, are they responding to the intention are they responding to the radio frequencies are they responding to both um, well, hang so on, I hang think, on. We actually have some data because yes. according to Blanchett, nothing happened on his uh, low light level TV camera. And we've been intending this for like days and days. Nothing happened on, on you know, the David's radio or Jimmy's radios or whatever until Jimmy started transmitting about half hour before airtime on the evening of Saturday the 4th. And two minutes later, you can look at the videotape, which is, uh, I think it's my fourth item up there. Uh, bingo, they showed up. And they didn't show up as objects, flying saucers, gently moving across the sky and wobbling in the falling leaf formation and all those classical thingies. They literally popped into space, into 3D space, allowed themselves to be imaged on the camera, then disappeared. And then a few minutes later, another one or two would pop in. And this went on for three hours. So the way they appeared and disappeared, they did not transverse 3D space. They literally came from some other space, hyperspace, a hyperdimension, entered our dimension, 
like a lesson, like this is how we roll, okay? And then well, they I went think, away. I think, yeah, I think these. I think the 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 transmission through the antenna, it, it could have been sort of like a flare, like hey. Look into this. Uh, be aware of this. Well, it was like, okay, these guys are serious. They're really doing it. The intention part, if we were all master, you know, uh, master meditators and just that, you know, like in a complete Zen sort of space and completely, you know, uh, getting our consciousness to cross different sort of <laughs> uh, like hyperdimensional realms. Like if we, if, if we were a team of people like that, you know, maybe setting the intention out would be a little bit more effective, but you know, I think it's, I think it's, well, we're going to try that. We're going to put people down the road in sacred spaces and just have them think at a certain time. Absolutely. So what I'd like David, what I'd like David to sort of talk about is like, so one, I mean, the, uh, the, the original frequency that we're broadcasting out of, uh, if you could sort of talk a little bit about uh, the conversation where we were potentially looking at maybe for this subsequent transmission that we do it on uh, a second uh, frequency as well. Um, I had also, you know, uh, told this to you and mentioned this to David as well, that it could be interesting in terms of, um, you know, instead of thinking that we need the most powerful and the biggest antenna to be doing this, um, perhaps there's something that, again, we can be incorporating uh, through sacred geometry measurements, um, some type of a uh, physical antenna structure that could be used as an additional sort of uh, way to amplify the, the signal. The, the whole idea of going to these ancient sites is fantastic because most of these ancient sites, and in my personal experience going to places, and I think this is a universal thing for anybody that's had the opportunity to visit a, 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 sacred, uh, a sacred site around the world, is that they do feel like natural frequency amplifiers, um, whether it be an actual physical frequency being generated from a radio or an antenna, or whether it be well, a frequency. Robin and I went around and I actually was able to measure these places with the Accutron, which is basically an inertial measurement detector. It measures the change in inertia of a vibrating tuning fork and then puts it into computer code so you can see it as a graph. I got astonishing readings at Stonehenge. They gave us, when we did the moon bounce on the uh, uh, 18th or 11th, I forget, was it the 11th, David, or the 18th? Um, we got, uh, I'm not sure of the exact date anymore. I think it was the 18th. We got the 56, which is the Aubrey holes, which is the base of the blue stones, as, as Maria told us, that was Stonehenge she, she said 1. It was Stonehenge 1. Yeah, yeah Stonehenge but, but those holes had the stones in them, 56, and that's important in the physics. So they told us Stonehenge. So what I would recommend... Yeah, that's why I need to know the, the exact diameter inner diameter of that circle yeah, I've, to I've, determine I've, I have all that i was going to send it to you okay. what i'm and going to I'm recommend all these what uh, i'm going to recommend models too. what i'm going to recommend is that we have maria come on next saturday and we plan out in detail in front of the world make it transparent how people all over the world can participate by being listeners and recorders in the network because what i'm thinking is going to happen and I will recommend strongly, based on the numbers, that we have Maria transmit on 432, not 144.1 or 
any no, other? No, I, I don't think I don't think it's either. That's why I wanted I wanted to determine the frequency even of the megalithic yard itself. Because if Stonehenge was was made again, you, you determine the frequency. Yeah, of the but we transmitted yard. to the moon at four thirty two and one forty four point one, right? Yeah, but now remember because they sent me first of all. Remember, we sent them to Amuamua the musical tones, which are 432 octaves of the Washington Monument, and they sent back the Washington Monument measurement with a tiny correction, and that's miraculous. But because they sent me the perfect royal cubit twice, they sent me the square of the royal cubit and the square of two royal cubits. Perfect. So I decided to calculate the frequency of an antenna at one perfect royal cubit of 20.601 inches, and it comes to 143.231 megahertz. Again, that's 432 is right in the middle of that number, and that is mind-blowing, the fact that a perfect royal cubit produces 143.231. I mean, that's mind-blowing. So I turned my radio on this week to that frequency without doing a single transmission and it was dead quiet, and but I was having an afternoon nap <laughs> after shoveling okay. snow. <laughs> a lot of being snow. Wiped out, and a lot of snow, and and all of a sudden the radio went crazy, and I recorded the responses on the radio and the frequencies, and the the frequencies were longitude latitudes, and again we know where the location is, and it also is possible that there are multiple locations and a date that begins with 2020-something. It looks like I'm seeing a number called 2020-something, and I'm, I'm not ready to give out the... So what if there is a... Well, there is a latitude and longitude, but what if there's a date for something that will happen on that latitude longitude? Well, it looks like there is. And so, again, another sacred site... This is sounding this is, so much like Close Encounters and the rendezvous at Devil's Tower. Well, watch this. Chaco Canyon in New Mexico, just south of you, Richard. I've no, been it's there. northwest of me. Northwest of you. Okay, so I took my kids there and my wife three years ago. Yeah, and I took And I went there. in with a – this is my item two tonight in my items. Item one was the frequency 143231, 143.231 megahertz. And item two – it's Chaco Canyon. And what's mind-blowing about the, the, the primary circle complex in Chaco Canyon, I found a perfect Solomon's Temple, Holy of Holies, using the Hebrew long cubit perfectly, 34.05 feet. And if you use the right royal cubit for the, the Hebrews as their long cubit, which is 20.43 inches, you get 43.05 feet. Now, I was so excited that day. I went to the park rangers, and I said, do you guys know you have a holy of holies in there? I said, perfect, <laughs> on a like a laser. So that means I can deter – I think we need somebody in Chaco Canyon with a laser, but it's not going to happen in February if you've got snow there because you can't get in that place because it's a very, very long road. That, that I know. We've up. driven it. Yeah, Robin yeah. and I took uh, her son, Michael, and we, and we, we sang – and the harmonics of Chaco Canyon are astonishing. And now, of course, I don't think they're accidental. 
No, they're, they're not, because they're using the same measurements that Solomon's Temple used. Exactly. I mean, to a T, this is phenomenal. Okay, let's math. get back to Stonehenge, because 430... Okay, Stonehenge... Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Hang on, hang on. 432 is part of the moon. The moon is 1080 miles in diameter, 2160 in, uh, I'm sorry, in radius, 2160 in diameter. They gave us Stonehenge. We only sent, we didn't send anything about Stonehenge to the moon in the transmission, but they gave us Stonehenge back. So if we start with Stonehenge as the anchor of this network, I think we ought to talk the language of, of, of the moon Stonehenge connection, which is 432. Now we can try some well, other it, things and we can record. It, yeah. So that's, I think, Richard, what we should do is I think that we should sort of keep things consistent from the first transmission. Exactly. Make sure that we're, make sure that we're also tapping into the 432. Control your variables. Should, Don't vary exactly. and, everything. And, and, then, and then dive deeper into, into, what uh, the, the next frequency that David is identifying? Um, again, going back to what what I was sort of and and again for anybody listening out there, if you go on to the the, the items, this is a part of the PDF. You can go and look through this. These are sort of the considerations and things that we wanted to go through and, and be able to be able to discuss. But if in the next transmission we start really ramping things up and start including. And this is based off of some conversations I had with uh, with David. Um, and again, I mean, the the parallels with with close encounters of the third kind are just it's it's a little bit ridiculous. But again, the, the fact is. <laughs> well, wait, wait, wait. Why wait, is it ridiculous? Why? Well, hang on, hang on. Why is it ridiculous? Maybe Spielberg. Maybe Spielberg is one of the in crowd. And remember, Hollywood presents films that are coded for the in crowd, a la my friend Gene Roddenberry. But Dick, if it's real, it'll be on television. If if Close Encounters was basically a tableau for the in crowd, the only will believe it if they see it in media. Then if he's an inner guy, if he's part of the inner circle, then everything in Close Encounters should be paid very close attention to because it's a primer for what to really do. I I just think it's important that people just don't think that we're using this as sort of like a step-by-step instructional video, right? Like, <laughs> you know, but but anyways, I mean, in all seriousness... Well, do you want to hear something really mind-blowing about Close Encounters? And okay. I wanted to try to find it, and I couldn't find it in time for tonight, but I will by next week. When, when they came to the sequence, remember where they stole the globe from the superintendent's mm-hmm. office to find the latitude-longitude of where the ship was going to come down and they would meet. Remember that scene? Yeah. And then, and then they gave the latitude and longitude. The latitude and longitude in the movie is totally wrong for devil's tower. Totally wrong. Big, huge error, except it's not, you know what the latitude and longitude of the, of the actual movie scene in close encounters refers to the latitude and longitude of the face on Mars from NASA. Hmm. And there are so many other coded Mars references in that film. It's not funny, starting with the first scene, remember? Ares Airlines. There's no Ares <laughs> Airlines. Ares is Mars. So Close Encounters, which I decoded decades ago, is an ode to What's on Mars? 
and the latitude-longitude of the famous globe scene for Devil's Tower has nothing to do with Devil's Tower. It has to do with the lat-long of Sidonia and the face on Mars. Wow. 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 <laughs> wow. That is a wow. No, that is a big wow. So wow. we can use it as a, as a manual, guys, and don't be <laughs> embarrassed. Well, no, because I think, look, at, I mean, th- th- this information that we're coding and sending out and the, the, the process and the, in- the intention behind what we're doing here is, is grounded on all sorts of different, different elements from ancient history to physics to mathematics. Um, again, this is, I think it's really important that in the next, uh, in the next uh, transmission, uh, something that David had uh, talked about was that there's um, that there's a a, a, a musical scale uh, based off of dimensions and certain aspects of the Great Pyramid. So what we would like to do is similar to the <laughs> similar to the the manual <laughs> the the the, uh, the the close encounters where they have a very simple sort of like musical sort of tone sequence. Da-na-na-na-na. We do something using a scale from the Great Pyramid, and then as part of that sequence, we also incorporate some type of a mathematic uh, component. Uh, are we still there? Yeah? We're here. Uh, but okay. We only have 90 uh, seconds we, uh, left. Yeah. Okay, that we incorporate some type of a uh, sequence with like the golden ratio of Fibonacci pi or something like that. So, um, again, if everybody can kind of go and take a look at sort of some of the the discussion notes, you can go into a little bit more of some of the considerations. And I think for next week we'll be able to have a much more concise documentation to be able to and uh, and go over things with everybody. To exactly be what's continued. Gosh, there you go. what a what a what a packed show! What a wonderful panel! But excellent work, John and David and Thomas. Go download Thomas's PDF. Look at how you might be able to contribute, how you want to participate, whether you're near a sacred site. And we will continue all of this next Saturday when we do part two of How Do You Talk to an Alien? Until tomorrow night, same time, same bad channel. Remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.